This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. We are back with another season of Technically Human. For our first episode of the season, I'm bringing you a conversation with one of my favorite thinkers working on ethics in tech culture, Dr. Stephen Keltz. Dr. Stephen Keltz is a political theorist and longtime ethics educator and a lecturer at Princeton University in the politics department and at the University Center of Human Values. His current research is on the history and uses of market ideas, including theories of the firm and corporate organization. In addition to ongoing writing projects, Dr. Keltz consults in the private sector with companies looking to align their market value with their ethical values, working to develop frameworks to help employees navigate ethical pitfalls in their organizational culture. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Deb. How are you doing? I'm really excited for this conversation. It's a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a very long time. So really grateful for your time. I'm really excited to have a chat. <laughs> I'm excited too. Honored to be on this. Um, so Stephen, you teach at Princeton and you've been teaching ethics to students for over 20 years. That's a long time to be teaching ethics. I imagine that some things may have changed in the past 20 years. What's changed since you started? Do students come in with different questions these days? Do you feel a need to emphasize different things when you teach today that you didn't feel the need to emphasize when you started? How does teaching ethics in 2022 seem different from teaching ethics in, say, 2002? Yeah, it really does. And I, I I, I spend altogether too much time actually thinking about this question. I'm not sure I love the implication of the question, though, um, Deb. It's like, Grandpa, tell us about the olden <laughs> days. Well, here's here's what I observe. Um, I, I really do think, especially since I've, I teach ethics and public policy classes frequently, and I teach the history of economic ideas as well, that there are some things I've noticed. Before the 2008 financial crash, I really did feel that students were coming in uh, to my classroom fairly certain in the truth of something that we might call libertarian economics. People call it supply side, free market ideas, but the broad notion of libertarian economics. In fact, I think that they were so confident in this that they didn't believe it to be an ideology. So if you question philosophically the basis of this view, many students would just sort of shuffle it off, uh, right? Like, no, no, no. They'd be skeptical that you could question these views using an ethical lens uh, in any way. It was just grab. Well, what is the basis? What is the basis of those views? Maybe we can establish that first. Of libertarian economics? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that it it was built really very much in response to Marxism. And so it, it's explicit in the works of someone like Milton Friedman uh, that he wanted to develop a concept of economics that took no part in Marxist economics. So in one of Milton Friedman's most famous books, Capitalism and Freedom, uh, he develops his, some of the core principles just as really inverse statements of Marx, right? Rather than saying, from each according to his ability and to each according to his needs, Friedman responds from each according to uh, that which he chooses to produce and to each according to what they earn by their contract or something like that. So he's very explicitly trying to make create an anti-Marxist 
economics. And that means actually dropping some of the ideological assumptions that were there in Marx. Marxian economics was a heck of a lot closer to the economics taught by even Keynes or taught in American universities than you might think. And a lot of Marx's uh, presumptions about how an economy operated, what money was, how central banks could work, and so on and so forth, look a lot more like modern economics than, than you might think. So the idea was to rid economics of anything that smacked of Marxianism. Any turning point in Marx's thought had to be got rid of. Any concept that he would take that sounded plausible, but he took it in a Marxist direction, well, that had to be gone. Um, and so I think that was one way of talking about the the ideological basis of um, of this that version of economics. And so in two thousand and eight, the financial crisis shocks the American public, and in terms of uh, showing us that our system is pretty fallible. So what happens? What 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 changes for you that that you saw happening in the ethics uh, space? Yeah. So here's my observation: the those students who I was uh, teaching in the early two thousands were sort of committed libertarian economists, many of them. But like I said, they, they thought of it as gravity, right? And so they also, at the same time, could be relativists, ethically speaking. And in some ways, were much more casually committed to relativism. Oh, sure, you might say that you have your ethical values that would critique the mind, but everybody's got their own ethical values. I'm just going to be a libertarian economist. I mean, it's so interesting. I think I see the same thing happening in myself. You know, I grew up in the golden age of postmodernism and, you know, who's to say what is right and what is wrong. And, you know, it's just kind of a hall of mirrors. And suddenly, I think probably around 2008, I started to become very much so the moral realist that you were talking about, the idea that there are there are better and worse opinions and that uh, ethics is not just culturally relative, but actually something something real. It's conceptually real, not materially real, but conceptually real, and that uh, there are better and worse ethical systems to be worked out. Is that somewhat of what you were finding as well? I really feel soon after the financial crisis, students were coming in with more of that attitude. Um, and so more committed to the idea that there existed in ethical truth and far more questioning of that libertarian economics. So whereas, you know, before the 2008 financial crisis, I had a student, I was talking about Milton Friedman's idea because I teach a lot of uh, Milton Friedman, although skeptical about his uh, ideas. I was talking about Milton Friedman's idea that the corporation exists primarily for the benefit of shareholders, for their profit. And like I said, this student, thinking that that idea was really just gravity, said, well, that can't be questioned. I learned that in AP economics, right? Oh, oh, okay. It turns out to be a truth of the firm, not, uh, not just Milton Friedman's idea of the firm. But after 2008, students were hungry for a discussion of that. Well, wait a minute. When did a, f a person first write about that? When did that get instantiated in law? Is it fully instantiated in law? Uh, what laws make it uh, true or untrue? What other changes in the law occurred throughout the course of the 1980s and the early 1990s that changed our notion of what a firm is and so forth? Uh, so they were much more receptive to that. And the last thing I'll say about that is that, strangely, from 2008 or 2010 on, the committed relativists in my classes have all been science students. Their science professors have been telling them, here's the difference between science and the humanities. We deal with what's real. 
they deal with what's subjective. So the science students are now, are, are now arguing, hey, wait a minute, like you can't make that ethical judgment. The humanities students are desperate to make these ethical judgments, specifically in the economic realm. And the science students are saying, but you can't make that ethical judgment because everything's subjective. And so now I have to deal with, in some sense, talking about that particular issue with now a whole new crop of students, but coming at it from a very different angle. I mean, this is so fascinating to me because, of course, our topic today is not just ethics, but ethics and technology. And I think you're pointing to something very interesting, which is that the people in tech uh who oftentimes have the kinds of backgrounds you're talking about, science backgrounds, STEM backgrounds, are coming at ethics with the idea that the numerical values that they are using in terms of computing are operationalizable, meaning that they can essentially uh, quantify and structure their products neutrally. And yet the humanities, the ethics side is seen as kind of you know the thing that has no shape whatsoever. There is no ultimate a definition to these things. And I, of course, argue the uh, opposite, which is that course concepts and of course ethics have shapes. When I talk to my students, I say, you know, there are, there are five concepts that I actually think are more real than I think the table or the computer that I'm talking to you through is real. That's love, justice, truth, beauty, and human rights. And I talk, I give the example of human rights. I say, well, in human rights, you know, I can't prove to you with a microscope that human rights exists. I can't show you or demonstrate to you that human rights exist in an empirical way. I can point you toward laws that say human rights exist, but I can't, I can't show you that uh, with my laboratory. And yet believing in them is foundational. It's axiomatic to everything else that I believe. And of course, we can't provide a definite shape to it, but we can certainly gesture toward the shape of it. And through that process of interrogation, we can actually discover using, I think, scientific uh, methods, the reality of a concept. So this is really interesting to me. And I want to get more into your thinking about tech, because now I see coming from the background and the uh, liberal uh, economics and corporations, why you're so interested in today's economy uh, with tech companies. And I guess maybe maybe to frame the question or to put a point on it a little bit, you know, you teach at the University Center for Human Values, and I'm really interested about what you have seen in terms of how the humanities have moved toward questions of the intersection of human values or tech, or how tech, conversely, has moved toward the intersection of uh, ethics and human values. Yeah, that's right. And so like the the short history of my uh, 20 years, there could be another periodization uh, there where somewhere around 2016 or 2017, the urgency of the ethical questions for tech has started to poke its head up again. And my science students weren't necessarily behaving in the same way. And I think a lot of that has to do with rapid advancement in neural networks, followed by serious concerns that were emerging at that exact time about how these networks could, uh, you know, mislearn the world and could end up causing systematic pattern results, which uh, we reject as Americans or as, you know, or as simply ethical people. And so the concern started to arise in tech as well. And then, I mean, it's been, it's the, it's the most glorious bandwagon you could possibly imagine um, because humanities people, you referred to humanists, I, I think we, f we find ways to separate ourselves from each other more often than anyone else uh, would. And only when there's a proposal on the table in a faculty meeting that is about the sciences versus the humanities, all of a sudden these people with all these different methodologies are actually like, wait a minute, yeah, I am a hum humanist. I'm with you, Deb. 
but otherwise we we could get into these methodological battles right i'm more a historian of political thought and far less you know comparative literature and etc and we could have battles about how that separates us but the last five years have seen us all sort of pulling on the same wars in a lot of ways right wait there are these problems we really need to do something about and they are things that we have been preparing our entire lives to talk about or at least to educate students about. You and I might have some methodological debates, but uh, but I think we would probably do, as you suggest, have more in common than we have differences between us. Of course, the starker divide, I think, has historically been uh, in the in the American Academy, at least, between the humanities and the sciences. Now, of course, if you go back even further, humanists and technologists are one and the same, right? <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci was a master of anatomy and biological sciences, and he was also a brilliant painter as most people know. Arthur Conan Doyle, right, was a doctor and he was a brilliant writer. And so these divisions, I think, are much more recent. And they're especially, I think, built in the American Academy. I went to UCLA for my doctorate. And I like to share with people that I grew up on what's called North Campus, which had all of the humanities. And we had gargoyles and we had, you know, gothic buildings uh, and no air conditioning. And South Campus was where the sciences were. And they had no gargoyles, no gothic buildings, um, but they had functional air conditioning and the AV (laughs) equipment always worked. So I'm curious about what you see or if you see any momentum or any movement toward uh, STEM and tech scholars in thinking about the humanities. I mean, as a humanities person, I spend a lot of time in rooms with tech people, but I'm not sure that the tech folks always seek us out with the same interest. Historically, at least, that has not been the case. Do you see any shift or change on your side? I do. Uh, with some acquaintances and colleagues here who may partially explain that. Arvind Narayanan in our computer science department and Olga Rusakovsky as well, who are some of the most thoughtful, some of the most uh, prolific, and some of the kindest people I've ever known. They are encouraging their tech students even to seek out better education in ethics, to to seek out deeper thinking on ethics. And in a lot of ways, they're actually doing that in their own labs. Right. So I do see that motion locally near me, and I see it in some of the firms that I've consulted for, and I see it in the broader discussions on Twitter. I'm actually really very hopeful of the of the direction that this conversation is going. Well, what do you think shifted? What do you think is facilitating that momentum toward uh, the integration or cross-disciplinary conversations in the way that you're talking about? Well, I don't know, but I'd like to see more of it. If you if you figure out what the magic pill is, can we have them mint it? <laughs> I, have a, I have a magic pill. I'm afraid that you're going to think it's very cynical. There's, there's two magic pills, I guess, that are symbiotic with one another. The first is uh, the magic pill of funding. <laughs> and the fact that there seems to be a lot more funding through organizations like the National Science Foundation or uh, Google for people who are working in traditional STEM fields. Now, you and I are scholars uh, in the humanities where the rationing is much uh, more sparse. And I think that there is a pull in the humanities to work on things that are considered to be useful or urgent and that are fundable. Those are things for which scholars like you and I get rewards. And I think that conversely, the The second pill is that NSF and other grant award institutions are increasingly looking for interdisciplinary conversations and interdisciplinary work. 
And I think that the funding, I'm hopeful that the funding structure is facilitating those kinds of conversations. Now, there are, all, of course, a lot of things that I'm very cynical about in that regard. For one thing, the motivation sometimes of scholars being the financial reward rather than the work in and of itself. For another thing, you know, uh, I actually worked on the Biden campaign and higher education policy. And one of the things that I discovered is that what we think of as kind of intuitive or neutral, this idea that the sciences have these large pockets of money available to them and that the humanities do not. And that similarly, the structure of education being that a person who has a degree in STEM has entry-level job waiting for them after four years. And those of us who study in English literature, economics, may have to do several years of unpaid internships and job seeking before we find that same entry-level job. Those things are not neutral, as it turns out. It is the structure and the outcome of years of governmental funding and structural decisions by federal and local governments to create that kind of structure. So again, uh, <laughs> I don't want to go on too long about this, but I do think that there are serious infrastructural and very deeply entrenched institutionalized ways that have both inhibited interdisciplinary activity in the past and that continue, I think, to make it challenging, but I think also at this point in time offer some new opportunities. I won't disagree with anything that you said there, but I would say it doesn't then explain what I take to be and what I see as an increasing interest among the technologists in the corporations for discussing ethics and for getting the ethics of their products right. I think that a lot, a lot of work has to go into looking at the workflow of these engineers and looking at the processes built into different companies. Um, the processes built in through which they're talking to user interface people and through which they're talking to the marketing people and et cetera. It is a hypothesis of mine that within those processes, there's a lot more room being built in for reflection upon the objective of a, of a technology, which calls out for uh, some more ethical nuance. And, and these folks are, are wonderful people, I think, most of the time. And once they see the need for that ethical nuance, they do, in fact, go in search of it sometimes within their, from the ethicists within their own company, but frequently through books, courses online, etc. All of these things are burgeoning. This is what I wanted to ask you about because your current work looks at the role of tech workers and their ability and oftentimes the limits that they have to acting ethically. What led you to want to look at the structure of ethical action in the tech industry? What were you seeing? What are you noticing? I'm particularly interested in utilitarian decision-making. I'm not a, myself a utilitarian, uh, so now I've denied any uh, particular ethical basis twice in this conversation. Perhaps we'll have to go for three somewhere down the line. Uh, but I'm not a libertarian. Deontologist? I can deny that one, too. Now I've got my three out of the way. I am not a libertarian economist. I'm not a utilitarian. But I think that the structure of utilitarian decision-making, the structure assumed within the theory, is really fascinating. And the discussions of what precisely happiness consists in, how does it relate more broadly to the human good, how can the two be separated from each other? Uh, what precisely is pleasure? Could that be separated from the human good? I think that the, the structure of decision-making within utilitarianism, the assumed structure of decision-making, is a great lens through which we can reflect on the structure of decision-making within uh, tech corporations as well. Because technologists making these decisions may see utilitarianism to be the most natural fit for their way of thinking, 
a maximizing way of thinking. And yet very soon after you begin to think like a utilitarian, you begin to complicate your own maximizing thought. And you begin to think about the extent to which you can maximize any given variable, pleasure, happiness, etc., for everyone all at once. What does that mean mathematically? In what way does my own happiness actually play into and or corrupt my maximizing thinking as a utilitarian? So I, I want to use these two as lenses onto each other to see what we can learn about both at once. Is there a particular distinction or particular dimension of ethical thought that is unique to the tech industry or tech workers or tech corporations? You know, I think that many of the questions that you are asking about ethics are not necessarily limited to the tech industry. I would think that those are questions that any industry and any company ought to be asking. So what is it about tech companies or tech workers that makes these questions a particular area of focus or study that it, that is distinct in some way? Is it the fact that the people working in this industry come out of STEM backgrounds where ethics is often taught and thought about as kind of a morally relative? Is there something in the production of technological products specifically that make these questions idiosyncratic to the tech industry? To me, I think it's the broad reach of the application of some more recent technological ideas so that it, it's unlikely, you know, in a case study that we might uh, talk about later, it's unlikely, for instance, that Honda back in the 1980s, when they began to be studied as a sort of knowledge producing corporation, it's unlikely that Honda would have affected how you made your toast in the morning and how you drove to work and how you interacted with your spouse and how you interacted with people other than your spouse and how you interacted with the people you supervised at work or were supervised by and how we fought war and on and on and on. But a company like Google can be involved in Project Maven, the drone project. They can be involved in cars. They can be involved in communication uh, techniques that allow you to communicate with family and others beyond family. They can be involved in technologies that uh, do indeed create workflows and reporting structures within corporations. The, the technology now can literally touch on everything and opens up the door for people uh, behaving in their very human ways, sometimes ethical and unethical as well, but in, in, you know, behaving sort of throughout their day using these technologies and all of them interacting with each other. It creates this, this opportunity for an explosion of effects of our behavior through the technological platforms of a given company. They have to be concerned about how the various different instantiations of their technology in their different uh, products interact with each other. Well, this makes me want to ask you a question about the relationship between tech companies and tech production and the ethical good overall. What, what is the role of the tech corporation in producing the ethical good? And I'll share a little bit about where this question is coming from, because I had a fascinating experience a couple of months ago where I was overseeing a senior project of a brilliant student who wanted to document and analyze all of the ethical programs and classes taking place in computer science departments at colleges across the country. And she remarked that she was really surprised in her research to discover that many ethical programs and classes in computer science departments were in place and, and were really functioning and very popular. But she thought that it was a bit weird that there were so many ethical 
programs in computer science departments and almost no classes in ethics in other areas of engineering, for example. There are very few ethical classes in civil engineering. And we were theorizing why this was the case. And it dawned on me that probably there are far fewer ethical programs and courses in departments like civil engineering, because in civil engineering, we have like... (laughs) laws. We have actual laws. If you want to be a civil engineer, you have to abide by not ethics, but regulations. Um, You have to get permits. These are really strict structures that determine what you can and cannot do. That's not the same in the current technological environment, particularly in digital technologies. And so instead of laws, we have ethics. That's a little bit uh, cynical of me, and that's the cynical side of me where I believe that tech corporations who are tasked with or who are promoting the idea of ethics actually have an incentive to do that because that means that we might not impose uh, laws telling them what they have to do if they just toe the line and promote what they are doing ethically. So forgive me if I'm a little bit uh, cynical in in thinking that teaching corporate good is the answer rather than teaching or advocating for or demanding corporate compliance. So how do we think about the idea of the ethical good in the context of tech corporations? Yeah, well, let me give a specific answer to your question, but then we can talk about the more general question at the end, if you have four or five hours. (laughs) We do. Yeah, no, this is this is just episode one in in your four part series. Oh, I know for real. Now your your audience is currently they're not, they're nodding off as we speak. Definitely not this guy again. <laughs> I think the specific answer is this. So let me recommend actually to you and to your student a book called Extracting Accountability by Jessica Smith, and I believe she is at the Colorado School of Mines. A book blew my mind. And I've only had the pleasure of interacting with Dr. Smith once. Also a scholar named Joe Herkert at, I believe, North Carolina State University, whose work blows my mind. One possible hypothesis there about civil engineers is that, you know, to, to steal a phrase, that ethics had always already been part of their process. So that a civil engineer needed to be taught already as part of their training how to, for instance, uh, speak to a town council, how to more generally get feedback broadly from the citizens of a town before they would put a dam in, that the the very process of, of actually coming up with and justifying a project, f- finding funding for it, justifying the funding for it, applying to the federal government for it, involved more social cues and necessary social knowledge than computer programming did from the start. So a possibly less cynical take uh, would be that this had already been part of other engineering fields, in particular built into the design process itself, thinking about the social ramifications uh, of the technology and thinking about how society wished to use the technology or wished to banish it from their midst. All of these things were maybe already part of of these other disciplines previously. So you're less cynical than I am about the role of ethics classes specifically in the tech industry, which is fine. I I always appreciate somebody pushing me back from my 
cynical uh, edge of the volcano. Perhaps I would be every day, but it also happens to be 75 degrees oh. here today. So I'm just in a springtime mood. So I think I am optimistic about these things. Well, then I, I want to push you a little bit further to, to share how then is a non-cynical person, you think about the role of the ethical good in the context of tech corporations. How do tech corporations themselves think about the ethical good? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Facebook, as if I could. No, Mark Zuckerberg does that himself. <laughs> yes. So the question that you asked is a fascinating one about the role of ethics more broadly. And I think actually kind of calls for, for me to give a definition of what I take ethics to be. And I think you'll take it to be something different. And I think that probably be an interesting conversation. So I, I take ethics to be the field of asking about the human good at three levels. And I think it's commonly spoken of as asking this question about the human good at, a, at at least two levels, but I think there are really three. One is the good for the person. So what would be the good life for me? What would be the good life for any person? The second is at an intermediate level of our sort of, I'll call them intermediate associations. And that might go all the way up to the level of the polity. So you might ask that question about churches, Kiwanis clubs, or the United States of America, the state of California, whatever it might be. And that's a question of what is the good life for us? Right? How shall we arrange our lives together politically or as an association? such that we achieve a good life for us. And then I think always within every ethical theory, there's also a more abstract question about the good life. And that's a good life for abstract entities like society, let's say, humanity at the biggest level. And those are not questions that we can necessarily ask with respect to how would we use our political authority or our associational authority to address those things? The bigger and the causal, the causal stories to be told about those more abstract entities are more difficult for us to grasp. The steering wheel may be hardest to grasp in those particular areas. But I think that an ethical theory is going to ask questions at all of those levels. And a good ethical theory is going to integrate what the good life for a person what the good life for an association and what the good life for a more abstract entity is going to mean together. The next question is, how does that answer your question? Well, I think that the tech corporation is forced into thinking about ethics at all of these levels. Sometimes they are upgraded for having systemic effects on the abstract entity of society, increasing or reinforcing perhaps even making worse systemic racism, uh, for instance, gender biases, discriminations, and others. Sometimes they are affecting the life of a person. The Facebook files recently revealing how Facebook had been studying the effect of Instagram on teen girls. So these questions are sort of forced onto the plate of these tech companies because their technologies are so wide ranging in their effects. Again, I think in ways that other companies just weren't themselves on a daily or weekly basis, touching the good life of a person, the good life of, of, a, of an association, like a political association, and the entirety of society all at the same time. A car didn't do that. It took both the car and the Eisenhower highway system and suburbanization 
and effects of other social upheaval in the 1960s to drive suburbanization and so on and so forth. So the way in which the car changed society is intermediated through lots of other effects beyond just the inexpensiveness of Honda's cars, let's say, just to use the same company as I used before. But again, Google can affect all three of those levels all at once tomorrow. So I'll I'll lay out where I agree with you first, and then I can talk about some of the reasons where I think I depart from this idea um, have corporate values on an ethical level or want to or think about spending their time and the resources on pursuing the ethical good. So on the one hand, I've been very interested lately and in, you know, I'm working on a project currently that looks at two histories. The first is the history of human rights and the second is the history of technological production from the uh, 18th century forward. And my argument is that we think of those two things oftentimes in very distinct terms, but actually there's a lot of overlap. In fact, some of our great human rights thinkers have been some of the great technologists from you know Thomas Jefferson to Benjamin Franklin to George Washington Carver to Albert Einstein to Al Gore. Here are people who were innovating on a technical level and also deeply thoughtful and oftentimes instrumental in the development of human rights. And my argument here is that in both technological innovation and a very fundamental level and at the very bedrock of human rights is the idea of how do we make life better? Here's a vision of the world as it could or should be. And here are the instruments, both conceptual and technological that can allow human society to reach that world as it could or should be. And so I'm very fascinated by this kind of moral utopian thinking at the bedrock of both of these two discourses. And that is my very optimistic side when I marvel at the extravagance and the audacity and the brilliance of these two lines of thinking. And my more cynical side, I think, has been a hard one living in Silicon Valley for as long as I have and noticing that the great innovations happening in Silicon Valley right now are not uh, typically great because they contribute something fundamental to human flourishing and well-being, but because they are deeply profitable. And the incentive structures around what ideas get built, what ideas get listened to, what ideas get funding, what ideas end up as our apps and as our technological devices are oftentimes in pursuit of profit and wealth for shareholders and not necessarily because they're good ideas. So I guess my more cynical uh, viewpoint comes from this environment where I find myself in, where you're a person who's knowledgeable about economic history. I think one of the fascinating moments in economic history is the movement of finance people from Wall Street out west to Silicon Valley, simply because Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley production has become more lucrative in many ways than the traditional form of finance. So I want to think that the values are ethical values because I deeply believe in a very primitive way that technological production is mobilized by the idea of a kind of moral utopian vision. But there's this other side of me that is very, I think, deeply alert to the ways in which technological production is not necessarily right now, at least being oriented toward that, at least not in Silicon Valley. Let me try out a, a distinction on you to see if it fits our conversation right now and, and may help to explain some of our difference in perspective on this, right? I think it's often the case that within ethical theories, there's a concern that there could be incentives or impetus to cause someone to violate 
an ethical principle. So one reason to be concerned about the effects of money is that although money systems, I think, are broadly speaking, ethical systems, the incentives built in them may violate some of the ethical norms contained within the monetary system. So these incentives or impetus comes from the outside. Then, and the possibility there is that the behavior becomes unethical. There's another distinction to be made that people's behavior is conforming to an ethical system, but we just don't like it. So I would still describe their behavior as ethical, but wrong. Uh, the third distinction is that there can be non-ethical arenas in life. That is possible, at least. It's at least possible that if I read a recipe that told me to add extra baking soda to my bread dough, if I live in Denver, Colorado, that that in and of itself, in isolation, would have no ethical bearing on me, my good life, society, and etc. Well, there may be other instances in which the production of that baking soda might cause ethical problems and et cetera, et cetera. But in and of itself, the instructions have no ethical bearing. That might be a non-ethical area of life. So things can be ethical but wrong. They can be unethical, violating an agreed upon set of principles. They can be non-ethical. And I think they can be many things beyond that as well. What what troubles me, and here may be an, a, a, an agreement between us, um, but I'm using different terminology. But let's see. What troubles me is financiers or corporations or engineers saying to themselves that our market activity is non-ethical. It's like the use of baking soda. We just follow a recipe. We're here to make money. We do whatever the heck it is to make money. And ethics was never supposed to be part of this arena. So when I say that these companies are already engaged in ethics, you could see that as a way of, of, of simply talking to people about the process they're already engaged in and pointing out to them the way in which they are already making ethical decisions. That is, they don't exist in a non-ethical realm. And so they exist in a realm in which we could potentially judge their behavior to be unethical. Yeah, I like that. I've read your argument that corporate values are indeed ethical values, I think, to to the point that you are speaking on right now. And you argue that, I'm going to actually directly quote you here, that design for innovation envisions a future world which serves the needs of the human, including innovators, more than it harms them. The tech corporation must orient itself toward ethical values to achieve market value. Okay, so teaching and writing about ethics and technology, I've argued that values such as equity and inclusion are important in the ideation and creation of tech products precisely for the reasons that you mentioned. They may appear neutral, but they actually have rather large ethical implications. People are making those ethical decisions without necessarily identifying them as ethical. And I argue that equity in particular and inclusion in particular are important in the ideation and creation of tech products, because if your product is misaligned with an entire segment of a community, it's a financial problem as well as an ethical problem, right? Conversely, if you solve a problem for a community that has been ignored or marginalized, you can actually create a lot of value. There's a lot of market value to be made when you include and you uh, diversify and you allow your product to be equitable. So my argument is as much capitalist, I think, as it is moralist. You know, I sometimes give the example of the woman who started the company Spanx. Here's a woman who 
had her idea turned down by, I think, something like hundreds of venture capitalists, mostly men, who did not see that particular product as valuable. They didn't know the value of the problem. Of course, uh, Spanx is a billion-dollar company because for women, shapewear actually solves a very important problem, which is how do you look good or as good as you want to look in your clothing? How do you feel good when you put on clothing? And so when you try and solve a problem for a community that has been marginalized or whose problems have not been taken seriously, then I think you can generate a lot of capital. Again, my argument is as much uh, capitalist and as it is moralist. But I think you might in your argument, be saying something a little bit different. What what leads you to say that tech corporation must orient itself toward ethical values to achieve market value? I mean, don't so many of our current tech companies, ones that have made their CEOs and their workers terrifically wealthy, but don't particularly seem interested in or actively actually dismissive of ethics, uh, demonstrably prove the opposite? of this idea that tech corporations must orient themselves toward ethical values to achieve market value? I think that if I were to rewrite that sentence, and don't get me started because you know how insane we can get with rewriting. <laughs> but if I were to rewrite- I never look at anything once I publish it. It's too, t- it's too terrifying. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, you speak truth. If I were to rewrite that sentence, I think it's the word must that I might change there. I don't want to give the impression uh, with the argument that I am thinking of ethics as a sort of ghost outside of the tech firm that rides its way in to haunt the decisions that are being made in this otherwise corporate, otherwise market, otherwise purely technologically oriented environment. It's instead that the firm is already making these decisions. The decision to to make undergarments in sizes two through six exclusively, well, is a decision. It's a comment on the people who you want your customers to be. It's a comment on the social role that your garment is going to play. And it's in the associations of your society. And it's a comment perhaps more broadly on society. And you may make that decision. And you may say that there's a principled reason you have to do that. But realize that you are in the realm of ethical decision making when you do that. And so I like your Spanx example, and this is precisely how I would think about it. I want to shift gears a little bit because I've been waiting to ask you about your new project, which is being funded by Google. You just received funding from Google to initiate a new research study that asks whether the Agile Scrum methodology, and you're going to have to explain and define what Agile and Scrum are, I'm afraid. But you you want to research whether Agile and Scrum methodologies are biased towards certain values and against others. So first, what is the Agile Scrum methodology and why is it so important to understand the Agile Scrum methodology if we want to understand the tech industry? Second, what led you to want to research this? Were, were you seeing or noticing what's your hypothesis and what are the stakes if you do discover that the Agile or Scrum methodology is biased towards certain values and against others? Well, I think the first thing I want to do is give uh, a shout out to two people I've never met and two scholars of business organizations, Nanaka and Takayuchi, who were publishing from the mid 80s to the mid 90s, and then continued publishing after that. But much of the work that I'm looking at is mid 80s to the mid 90s. And they simultaneously were critiquing economic theories of the firm, but they also were studying Japanese corporations and talking about the methodologies used within these corporations, in particular, the knowledge creating methodologies. How did these Japanese corporations actually cross knowledge from among the various different sectors of their corporation? 
how did they surface tacit knowledge, to use a phrase of theirs, or externalize tacit knowledge and make it explicit knowledge, which could be combined to create new products. So that their example, for instance, Honda, again, to go back to, could combine knowledge. They had a car very popular uh, at the time, which Nanaka and Takeuchi wrote about. And it was apparently called within the company, the tall boy. It was called the city when it was uh, released in Japan and elsewhere. Well, I believe not in the United States. And it was a, a very tall vehicle that was built on a very stable uh, platform, which was very attractive to consumers because it provided much more interior space with, without actually, say, raising up to the level of, uh, of an SUV, without actually losing any efficiency in terms of gas mileage and et cetera. So this was a very attractive vehicle, which they designed by bringing together knowledge about their customer base, knowledge about user experience right? Ergonomics, sometimes called, right? Knowledge about how to reduce the simply the size of their technologies and continue to have them be quite efficient, right? So people had to come together from all throughout Honda in order to create the tall boy, and they were led by a series of values, right? But they were also led through very particular processes, which by studying Honda and many other Japanese corporations, Nanaka and Takayuchi referred to as Scrum. So all of these different stakeholders in the project, everything from user experience uh, people to marketers to the technologists to folks who were just interested in miniaturization of the technology to the people who were doing the air conditioning in the car, all worked together on a team and all moved the ball downfield at the same time. It's a rugby analogy. So all of these people came together. They all moved the ball downfield at the same time, and they could all see the way in which the ball was being transported towards the stated value goals of the project. And in so doing, they could now devise and innovate ways in which their particular area of the technology could be altered, improved, or applied to the creation of the car or whatever it is in conjunction and in response to what the other folks were doing on the project. And what I found most interesting about their explanation of the Scrum methodology was their discussion that it was explicitly value-laden. It was about values for the consumer. It was about the values inherent in the technology. It was about the knowledge being produced. It, it found ways to encourage the technologists to feel good about sharing their tacit knowledge, sharing their specific expertise with others. Expertise is something that we can be quite jealous about at times. We want that just to be on our plate. We don't want to combine that with the expertise of the guy who's designing the air conditioning system or uh, whatever it might be, because I might lose some of my domain within the company. So there are really a lot of management strategies and techniques that go into using something like a Scrum methodology that are, I think it's worth saying, value-laden and that encourage people to really design and innovate, do things that are fresh, new and have a positive effect on the life of their consumers at the very least, if not also on their associational life and their social life. I mean, when when I hear that, I think one thing that emerges is not just the ability to see how the whole organization is working together and the different points and intersections where workers share 
or can share fields of knowledge or where their fields of knowledge or work becomes impactful on other areas of work in a different process. But also the ethical implications of that, which I think, you know, I term and I borrow this term from other scholars who have thought about this in the context of philosophy, bounded ethicality. That's a term that I'm really interested in. The more familiar term is bounded rationality. And to briefly define the term, it's the idea that what ethics does is tell us what we ought to do. And it doesn't oftentimes take into account the ways in which our agency to act ethically is radically circumscribed. And bounded ethicality looks at how we can maximize ethics or ethical activity in ways that acknowledge our abilities or inabilities to do so. What you're talking about here in the Scrum methodology is essentially engagement across the line of processes between different workers in separate processes so that they are informed about how their work contributes to the product as a whole. What bounded ethicality tells us is that in the context of working in one area, you may be the most ethical actor you can, you may have the most profoundly informed sense of ethics, and yet your ability to act in ethical ways is not complete. So I think about this in the context of tech work, because in tech work, so many workers, I think, come at it, having taken classes in ethics and technology, come at their first job at Facebook or at Google, deeply ethically aware, and then are put in processes where their ethical decision-making is not uh, possible in the line of work that they're in. So how do you see tech workers able to navigate these kinds of constraints? Do you think that Scrum has a new or novel possibility for allowing people to act ethically in ethically bounded ways? Or do you think that what Scrum does rather just makes more visible the ways in which actors are bound in terms of their ability to act ethically. And how, how do you go about thinking about and teaching something like bounded ethicality in the context of scrum methodology or organizational behavior? How do we empower an ethical actor to work in the corporate structure? That is the most fascinating question. And if you don't mind, I feel like I want to cite you on this concept of bounded ethicality, not least because the concept of bounded rationality, which is coined by Herbert Simon, was used within the theories of organization that I'm sort of arguing against in my work, the economic theories of the firm, as they developed from, say, 1955 through 1985 at the very least. And so to replace that with bounded ethicality would, would be a cool move on my part. Footnote, Deb Doney, 2022. <laughs> I'll get you the right footnote for it, because smarter people than I have coined that term. Yeah, fantastic. But yeah, I think the question that you're asking is uh, is exactly right. And I never fully answered your question about what could, what could make us afraid about the Scrum methodology going wrong. Well, it's a methodology that also calls for really quick decisions to be made, for a minimum viable product to be generated within a week or two weeks, and then to be iterated upon, for that product to be shipped potentially within two weeks as a minimum viable product in order to get the end users' responses to it, or the corporation that is buying the product, their responses to it. It's a process where the marketing people are constantly and always involved in decision-making, and they may have interests that are sort of orthogonal to the creation of a better technology, or maybe even orthogonal to the, the ethicality of the project. So you would fear that this would go wrong in some of the ways that I think utilitarian reasoning goes wrong. 
that's not an accusation about utilitarianism. It's just a reference to what I said about utilitarianism earlier. It's actually a demanding ethic. And I think justifiably so. It's a thing that makes me admire utilitarianism is that it demands that we lay behind some of our concern and our own happiness now and even in the future for that of others. And it's demanding in its definition of happiness as well. It's quite an admirable moral philosophy. But there are ways in which utilitarian reasoning can misfire, in which we get, say, time preference wrong. And so we're more concerned about happiness now than we are in the future. And we do that potentially irrationally. Or we get our social preference wrong. So we're more concerned about happiness for ourselves than we are about the happiness that we cause for larger associational or bigger, even bigger social groups, etc. There are a lot of ways in which the reasoning about it can go wrong, all of which can also go wrong in the scrum methodology. The pressure is there. The time pressure is there. The narrowing of the horizon uh, is there. Those very same things I just mentioned about uh, potential problems in utilitarian reasoning. Now, given that that's the case, my thought is, and I'm going to do my best uh, to actually test this out over the course of the next year in something else that we can uh, talk about, but my test is that you actually have to run undergraduate students through simulations of the workflow in order to tell them, here, right here, now, that's where you'd stand up and say, I need more time, or I don't think this is going in the right direction. Or I need to call in a manager who I know and trust to be concerned about this social issue. Or we need to talk about what this marketing person is recommending. Or we need more expertise from the user experience uh, community about how this is ultimately going to affect the end user or be used by the end user. And I hope that empowering uh, these students by teaching them not just the technology, not just programming, not just how to take code off of TensorFlow, but how to actually go through the workflow with people playing all of these roles can empower them to escape the bounds of their ethicality, as you're calling it. Yeah. I mean, maybe we get, today we're playing good cop, bad cop, or rather cynical cop, optimistic cop, because I feel a little ashamed to say this, but another thing that I've become a little cynical about is the idea that teaching students ethics is really going to solve anything. Because more and more, I get the sense of things leading me to believe that in a tech company, you can have all sorts of ethically inclined actors and ethically informed workers. But at the end of the day, if the CEO aligns priorities with the growth team, and if the ethics team demonstrates that a product or decision needs to be altered to stay within an ethical commitment, but the growth team shows that doing that will cost the company like 1% growth, and the CEO makes decisions that prioritize the growth team over the ethics team every single time, it doesn't matter how good or how informed or how thoughtful your ethics team is or how ethically learned your new bright worker newly graduated from Cal Poly or Princeton is because the priority will always be with the growth team and they will overrule the ethics team every single time. This is what critics of tech who have worked in tech say over and over again. And most of my students, if they take ethics seriously, are not going to be CEOs because oftentimes CEOs become CEOs because they're aggressive, motivated by power and money and not particularly concerned about the ethics it takes to get there in the first place, or at least less concerned about those ethics than they are the financial success or personal promise that 
ignoring ethics might allow them. So I feel like I can train students to be as ethically thoughtful as they can be, but unless some really serious change happens on the level of corporate structure or the incentive structures of what mobilizes technological ideation and innovation, and on the level of financial incentives, we can't really be optimistic about change. But Optimistic cop changed my mind. <laughs> well, I, I don't know, Deb. I wish I still kept that bottle of scotch in my office. That, that, was, that was a dose of uh, pessimism there. But what are you watching on TV these days? Are you watching the Elizabeth Holmes show? I am not. I did read John Carreyrou's book. The trial happened a couple of towns down from where I live. So I've been pretty on top of it. Haven't seen the documentary. It's on my list of the growing list of documentaries about frauds permutating across different streaming platforms right now. You have The Dropout, right? You have, what is it? The, the uh, Super super Pumped, which is the Uber show. Yeah, The Tindler Swindler. Um. <laughs> oh, The Tinder Swindler. We watched that uh, too, yeah. We also watched the Anna Delvey fraud. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And great acting in a lot of these things as well. So my reflection is is this, right? What does the proliferation of those shows actually tell us about the direction that the sort of American mind is going? And my hypothesis would be is that we are increasingly judgmental of the Zuckerbergs, the Elizabeth Holmeses, uh, and et cetera. And we're fascinated by these things, not because we want to raise further children who will do more of this in the future. Hey, look at her. She might have violated some ethical rules, but damned if she wasn't rich. That's not the message of any of these shows. I think that we saw and we have seen what Zuckerberg can do, but I celebrate Francis Hogan. I celebrate the fact that Facebook seems to be losing users as they consider what that company has done to them. I celebrate the fact that most of these technologies, some of the ones like Facebook with uh, these sort of network effects that tie us in regardless of whether we want to leave or not are somewhat different issue. But I celebrate the fact that mo with most of these technologies, we could be using Android phone tomorrow if we just don't like Tim Cook. We could erase a program from our computer and easily train ourselves to be on another one. So I don't disagree with you that we've seen a lot of very disappointing behavior from some people who we foolishly put a lot of trust in a decade uh, ago. And I don't disagree with you that there are a whole heck of a lot of people who are going to disappoint us over the coming decades. But you, you can't be an ethicist and decide to give up on uh, the topic just because people, it turns out, are deeply unethical. You can't play defense in the National Football League and quit the game because you gave up a touchdown, right? You, you just got to keep playing defense. And I think an ethicist, as an ethicist, I see myself as playing defense and I'm doing the best I can to educate people about what these ethical concepts mean and how they might apply them in their life. And I see a defense that is actually starting to turn the corner in the second half here and is actually fighting back. And I celebrate that. Well, maybe I should end by asking you what it is exactly that you want the people that you teach to walk away with from your classes. What do you want students who, who take your classes to walk away with as they leave their educational experience as students to go into their careers? Well, I think the first answer might be surprising given the discussion that we've been having. And the first answer is absolutely a thousand percent joy. They will never take another one of the books that I taught them off their shelf again unless they associate the experience with something joyful. 
exploratory, mind expanding, and expanding of their own capacities. So the first thing I try to do with my students is make the classroom a joyful experience. Students come back to me and have come back to me over the course of career. And they said to me, Kelch, you wouldn't believe it, but I actually still keep X book on my shelf, right? Well, actually, I've won a, I've won a battle there. I've won at least the start of a battle because maybe they might turn to it someday. And maybe they might remember some reflection that they had upon it, get some advice from it in, in a time of difficulty for them. And then the second thing that I want them to be able to take from my classes is empowerment. I think sometimes, unlike other classes, there are lots of different things that you can focus on in all sorts of classes, lots of different things that you can focus on in an ethics class as well. Writing skills, analytical skills, philosophical analysis may all be things they take out of the classroom. And I do those things too. But I have always done exercises to get them to be reflective about the ways in which they are empowered to make these ethical decisions. So I want them to feel joy, and then I want them to feel empowerment. One last question. Are you optimistic about the direction of ethical thought in the industry and in the academy? What keeps you optimistic, if so? I am very optimistic about the direction of these things, uh, because I think the defense is going to win. We still have a shot at the championship. And actually, having spoken to a lot of people who are in the industry, I mean, you know, let's get real a second for just a millisecond, you know, to paraphrase. But they don't they don't talk to me about how they're winning every day. They don't talk to me about how their bosses are always letting them in the room while the while the decisions get made. To paraphrase the same musical again, they don't talk about the ways in which it's all honey and wildflowers. They talk about the challenges, they talk about being excluded and et cetera, but I increasingly speak to these people, sophisticated, committed people working within uh, the industry who are seeing small changes as they work. I consistently speak to engineers uh, as well who say they're interested in reflecting upon their work ethically. I see uh, engineers who understand what I think is true, is that the creation of these technologies raises ethical questions in an even broader and more urgent way than it ever has before. And so I see these, albeit incremental, changes. And that makes me optimistic. Thank you very much, Stephen. Thank you, Deb.